Uh, hello and good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. And I'm George Dreckman, and I'll be hosting today's program. Before we get to our book today, I have to remind you that WORT is community radio and that we depend on your contributions to keep us going. This is our summer membership drive. It's only a week long, so we need you to uh, come through for us and pick up the phone and call 608-256-2001, where you can speak with Steve Gordon, who's answering the phones for us today. He also answered phones for our previous program, so he's putting in a double shift today. He'll be happy to take your pledge of support. You can also pledge online at WORTFM. Dot O-R-G. Uh, you can click on the donate button on our website and also click on the donate button on our wonderful app. We would really like to have your support. We are, uh, like I say, a community radio station. We always say it and that we are listener sponsored and you are the listener. So please, 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 in the words of the great Jim Brown, uh, James Brown, excuse me, Jim Brown played lacrosse, James Brown saying, please, please, please pick up the phone and give us a call. When we think about history, we tend to focus on events and people who have shaped our world. But equally important is the history of thoughts and ideas. My guest today is Professor Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen. She is the Merle Curdy and Vilas Borghese Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she teaches U.S. intellectual and cultural history. Today, we're going to discuss her most recent book, The Ideas That Shaped America, which is published by Oxford University Press. Professor, welcome to BookBeat. Thank you for having me, George. This is great. You know, my introduction to intellectual history came, I went back to college when I was 35. And uh, I was fortunate enough to take a summer school class with your colleague, Chuck Cohen, which was history, ah. yeah, it was history 101. And there were only like 10 of us in the room. It was like a graduate seminar with, with, with undergraduate students. And he steered me towards Perry Miller. And it was like getting hit in the head with a 10-ton rock. <laughs> it probably did weigh, I think his books did weigh about 10 tons. <laughs> it did. It was, it was really a struggle, and it took me several decades to recover from that experience before I went back to try to approach something uh, and I w- uh, related to intellectual history, and I wish I would have had your book at the beginning because your book is, is just a wonderful introduction to this whole topic, and it really is a very readable, wonderful summation of of this whole planoply of American idea. And it weighs, I, I, I've actually never put it on a scale, but I think it might weigh less than, than a pound. Yeah. So if, if Professor Cohen ever uh, threw it at you. It <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, now, how, let's, let's uh, begin by looking at, uh, the idea of American history, we tend to think, okay, it's here comes the Europeans. But there were lots of people here before us. What do we know about the, the intellectual life of uh, our indigenous forebears? So, it, um, it, you know, both a lot and very little at the same time. Um, so uh, I think it's important I mean, for myself, even in, in terms of writing the book, you know, when, when I write things like, or we say things like Native Americans or Indigenous Americans, we're not talking about one group of people. We're talking about um, upwards of millions of people, and, and the estimates are that there were anywhere from 300 to 500 distinct language groups in, Amer- in, in, in what today is the continental U.S., so you're, we're not talking about, yeah, it, so, so the difficulty there, George, is that you're talking about upward, hundreds of different cultures, um, you know, whether it's the Algonquins in the Northeast or the Seminoles in what's today's Florida, um, or even in the upper Midwest, the Potawatomis, you know, to, to the Navajo to the Southwest. Each of these places are so different that it, 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 the cultural 
cultures that were there from what we know about it were also very, very different, right? Um, right. And so, um, so anyway, I, I frustrate your question, no, or I frustrate you by answering, but I think that's in some ways the most important answer, which is that for, for starters, when we think about um, the people who inhabited this place for um, tens of thousands of years, if not longer, and of course many of whom still do inhabit um, today's right. continental U.S., um, that we're not talking about a single group. So that is to say any any answer to one would give would be just kind of a gross generalization, right? Because what applies to one cultural and linguistic group or, or what we would say is tribe, you know, doesn't pertain at all um, to another one. So right. that's that's sort of one of the first things I try to do with my own students is to just recognize that whenever we're talking about Native Americans or um, in, um, or Indians, or indigenous Americans, that that's really a shorthand for an incredibly diverse um, diverse groups of people. So that's that's the sort of first answer, and it's a little bit, un, I think, unsatisfying, but it's, it's important to always rem- remember that. The second thing that I would say is what do we know? We know? What we know is that most of what we know is by way of contact with European Americans. Um, and so that so much of what we know about these different tribal traditions and customs and practices is by way of contact, you know, whether that was initially um, in the um, 16th and 17th and even into 18th century with missionaries um, and new settlers. Um, and as we move forward into the 19th and 20th century with anthropologists and ethnographers. And so it's important to kind of keep that in mind, that most of the access that we have to early Native Indigenous American thought and culture is by way of contact and translation, right? Mm -hmm. So most of these cultures were oral cultures, but what gets recorded or does, you know, whatever limited gets recorded is by way of, um, you know, by writing. So already that's an act of of translation. Uh, Much of what we know about Native American religious traditions, we know by way of Native Americans who converted, oftentimes under duress, into Christianity, right? And then they would report on the faith tradition that they're you know, attempting to leave behind. So that's another way that I'm uh-huh. sort of g- give you a frustrating answer, but I think it's an important one, right? Which is, um, we have we have bits and pieces. There's wor- you know work of his um, archaeologists, but so much of what we know is so fragmentary, right? Because, um, you know, the widespread devastation um, and dislocation and and genocide. Sure. Uh, then you know it's it's you know along come the Europeans, <laughs> yeah. And we got there, there's really you know the thing that gets uh, there's two main thought two main reasons people came here. Some people came to get rich, and a lot of those went to Virginia early. And then some people mm-hmm. came here uh, along the uh, religious uh, practice track, and that seems to be the track the the idea of theology and religion that dominates a lot of the uh, early, what we would call, American thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so many of the earliest um, uh, emigres, if you will, to um, uh, the New World, uh, what would eventually become um, uh, the United States, were uh, religious emigres, so, so groups you know, fighting religious persecution and coming to America um, as an opportunity to be able to practice their uh, their faith um, in freedom, um, and but you know, but you said there's also a, a monetary um, yeah. uh, draw as well. And in fact, the twain does meet. Um, so one of the great commentators on early um, uh, uh, 16th century contact is Bartolome de las Casas, who was a, um, a Spanish missionary himself and he you know he he makes the point you know he's coming over there to convert um native uh, indigenous populations but what he was so disturbed to see was that his own spanish empire was supposedly coming to convert 
um, souls for Christ, but they were really there to search for gold. So it's just to say that, you know, the twain sometimes does meet, um, that, suppo- you know, what are supposedly for religious um, reasons um, that, that Europeans are making their way over here, that there was also a great um, financial benefit right, um, to gaining access to this place, to the natural resources of the place, to the abundant land, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so these two imperatives, right, um, the search for material well-being as well as the search for souls to convert or the search for one's own soul to attain an, an afterlife, that these actually comfortably went hand in hand. It, it, and the the idea of the search for your own soul, that really, you know, when, uh, when John Winthorpe was talking about the the city on the hill that's that he was kind of throwing down a challenge right as opposed to the way it became used by ronald reagan that we're this bright shiny beacon for civilization yeah you see if this was a video call or we were on tv or you and your um listeners slash viewers would see that i'm smiling um there there are many times when i i get to talk about this material or write about it as i did in the book or teach it as i do at uw madison that i get to smile on my face uh and it's not a smirk um Uh it's not a you know it's not a finger wagging kind of smirk but it's just a smile because it's one of those times where the history is so much more fascinating than the myth um and so what is the myth the myth that I'm guessing some of your listeners might know is the notion that so John Winthrop, the early governor of Massachusetts, himself a, a um, you know major uh, Puritan figure who comes over and comes over with the Arabella, with you know one of the first crop of uh, Puritans um, fleeing, supposedly fleeing, fleeing England and coming um, to uh, Massachusetts Bay to, to build a new life, to build a new colony. Um, and he says he gives what we we don't actually know whether he gave this speech a model of Christianity on the deck of the Arabella, whether he gave it before they left England, uh, whether there were they were arriving. So we don't know for sure. But there was this famous speech of 1630 model of Christian charity, where he's basically saying to the group of emigrants who are going with them. Um, so the myth is, he says, you know, we are going to be, quote, as a city on a hill, right? He's, he's quoting from the Bible, from Mika, all of the eyes of the world are going to be upon us. So if you read the, actually read the sermon, what he's saying is, and here's the finger wagging, we better <laughs> hold it together, people, <laughs> because here we are supposedly flaring, uh, you know, uh, uh, leaving religious persecution in pursuit you know, of our religious faith, and we, if we go there and we botch this, we will have made ourselves a laughing stock of the world. <laughs> so what we need to do is to actually live the word of Christ. We need to be each other's caretakers. We cannot let there be division between rich and poor. Meekness is more important, um, it's the most important virtue. What we want is great goodness, not greatness, right? Um, we want to be good. So it's really a beautiful, but also a kind of cautionary note. If we're going to pull this thing off, right, we're going to live you know, in this place um, called the New World, and we've got a shot to make the world anew, we better do it in the image of Christ, and we better do it based on what it is we know from our New Testament. But this is not what is remembered in the lore. What's remembered in the lore is simply, we are to be a city on the hill. Mm-hmm. What happens when that phrase gets pulled out of the larger message, which is exactly what happens with um, thanks in large part to Ronald Reagan's speechwriters um, in the 1980s, was to use this phrase and the larger speech from which it's taken as an example of American exceptionalism, right? The eyes of the world are on us. We have a great sense of national destiny and purpose. And so it basically became a kind of chest-thumping document of American national chauvinism, right, that did in fact um, exalt greatness over goodness. So any of the traces of that, that the Christian context, right, um, the context of being thy brother's keeper goes totally missing in the, the myth that gets uh, um, 
basically created with Ronald Reagan, and as many of your listeners probably know, it is still with us here today. You know, the the invocation of America as a city on the hill is usually a kind of triumphalist, chest-thumping, you know, yeah. America first um, <laughs> kind of thing. Yes. And Winthrop is invoked, you know, as the the the, um, the source of this. But of course, Winthrop meant nothing of this, nothing of the sort in the way that we use it in the modern uh, or, or it, um, it today in, in contemporary politics. Now, an, another uh, early New England family that you know gets, I think, some of it to me it was always distorted. Was when I think of the Mather clan, I think of the Salem witch trials. But yeah. uh, there was some intellectual heft to the Mather clan, wasn't there? Not. So I'm guessing you learned a little bit about the Mathers in Professor Cohen's course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so he, he specialized in early, or specializes, I should say. He's um, uh, still a Madisonian, still doing his yep. work, um, mm-hmm. still doing the Lord's work of early American history. Um, so you would have, I'm guessing, learned about them um, certainly there. But you're right, The um, certainly Cotton Mather is famous as the villain of the Salem witch trial. Um, so for your, for your listeners who don't know, the Mathers were, was a, a, a very prominent family of what we would say Puritan divines. So his father was Increase Mather, who was an important, important um, Puritan theologian um, and, uh, uh, um, and then went on to serve as the president of Harvard College for 15 years. And then his son, Cotton Mather, again, known as the villain, villain of the Salem uh, witch trials. But there was also a, a grandfather, Richard Mather, great-grandfather, John Cotton. So there's a, there's a, it's a long line of Puritan ministers. And what that, for the time, what, what they were is not just simply religious figures. They weren't just clergy, though that's not, that's, that's still something. They were also what we would call today as intellectuals, meaning to be, they, they're, 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 they were tasked, especially as part of their own Puritan mission, which was to try to understand the unseen world. Um, and so that they would come to it by way of the Bible, you know, reading the Bible and biblical exegesis, but also by way of what we today would call science. So there wasn't for the Mathers, you know, this hard and fast line between what we would call faith and what we would call science. And so what you can see, someone especially like a Cotton Mather who wrote up to 400 different titles, I mean, the guy was pretty (laughs) prolific, was a mind searching to render the invisible world visible. Um, and sometimes he uses the Bible as mm-hmm. th- the path to it. A lot of times he uses history, natural history, um, and today what we would call the material sciences to do that. Um, and so um, th- there's a wonderful quote about Cotton Mather, which I love, which is that he's best known for his worst moments, <laughs> 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 right? Cause he's, um, but he's a, really a fascinating, um, fascinating figure. Um, you know, striving to keep pushing at the limits of the known world to the unknown world. Um, and of course, yes. you know, to a modern sensibility, quite quite a bit of it looks what we might call sort of superstitious. But it was also a mind kind of, again, just pushing at the boundaries of human knowledge without letting it tip into something like hubris, right? Um, overstepping <laughs> the bounds of what humans can know and gods want want humans to know. Ah, so they're yes. fa- they're fascinating. Now, I, you know, because I mean, I re- I you know was one of the things. Now, when I if when Mather's name comes up, one of the things I talk about was, well, did you know that he was a leading proponent of inoculation against smallpox? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would think that the Mathers and several of their of their counterparts would be shocked by the current uh, evangelical uh, disposition uh, as oppo- opposing science. I think they would find it wholly illegible. I mean, it would be, um, it would be, um, again, I mean, I'm always a little reluctant to put words into the mouth of, you know, people long since dead. But again, you don't, even someone glancingly familiar uh, with their their lives and their thoughts, um, I think they would find it totally unintelligible. Um, They were, look, you know, the, the father was the president of Harvard College. Um, so the idea that intellect could not serve faith, um, 
you know that it's the work that that that's actually the work um of of of, pract- of practicing faith is that it is also an intellectual pursuit um and so that you know again they didn't have the same standards then that we do now of evidence and um you know scientific trials quite in the way that we do but they were very friend- friendly not only friendly is, is understated but you know craved whatever access the quote unquote modern sciences could give them to understand the world better um and so yeah i think they um yeah, <laughs> yeah. so if, if you're it, it, whatever listeners should not stop at the mather of of um the witch trials right. but also the mather um uh who's uh recommending modern science against smallpox yeah and you know we have i'm i want to remind everybody we're in the middle of our summer pledge drive and this is Madison Bookbeat, and uh, we are discussing uh, ideas that uh, shaped America with the author, uh, Dr. Uh, Jennifer Ratner uh, Rosenhagen from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And uh, we would appreciate it if you could pledge. Give us a call at 608-256-2001 or pledge online at wortfm.org or on the donate button on our app. And the one thing about the one thing I loved about your book was that there was a lot of information there covering a whole heck of a lot of time, but that makes it a big challenge for a program like this. I know. You know, where do we go? I mean, you know, because we so we had this religious tradition. Let me just touch briefly on. You know, I mean, the Enlightenment shaped the American Revolution. Uh, at least that seems to be uh, my take on it. But the mm-hmm. the Enlightenment in the United States, uh, or in America at that time, was a little different than it was in uh, Europe. A little more religious, correct? Absolutely. Um, this is um, so. Uh, this is one of the things I find so fascinating about. The revolution is many um, is how many revolutionaries actually enlisted the Bible to make sense of you know to make sense of themselves and to make sense of their situation and to embolden them to um, you know per- pursue the revolution. Um, but another source that was crucial was were Enlightenment ideas. And when we think about the Enlightenment, we typically think about this as a European phenomenon. Um, right, so you have um, you know the famous you know French philosophes um, sitting around in their salons and coming up you know with new ideas about human reason, about an ordered universe, about natural rights, you know all the things that kind of really move us into the modern world. Well, all of these Enlightenment ideas make their way to the United States, and in fact, many of them. Uh, many of these European thinkers are actually fascinated with America as they're formulating their Enlightenment ideas, because there was a lot of um, the, the the New World seemed to be a testing ground um, for their ideas about um, natural history, um, about um, uh, uh, natural science, um, about law, etc. So America plays a role in this, even in this quote unquote European Enlightenment. So the way that we need to think about the Enlightenment is it's really this transatlantic flow of ideas backwards and forwards. It's not just happening in um, Northern Europe. It's not just happening in the salons of uh, France, but it's also happening here in the United States. But you're right. One of the big differences is that the Enlightenment here is not as hostile to religion as we see, especially in, among the French in the French Enlightenment. And in fact, some of the most important promoters of Enlightenment ideas were ministers. So, where many Americans, or you know, would be whatever um, you know, colonists, and then would be early Americans, would first learn about Enlightenment ideas was on Sunday morning in their service through their ministers' um, Sunday sermons. And so, the 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 there isn't quite that same hostility between, let's say, you know, between the Bible and what were considered modern discoveries. Um, and as I said, religious figures are some of the most important proponents of 
um, enlightenment ideas. And there's a lot of speculation, George. Well, why is that? You know, and it's a, there's a yeah. complicated answer, right? Like, why, does, <laughs> why is there this inflection here in America that we don't see elsewhere? And, I, I mean, one always needs to hover in generalizations when answering a big question like that. But one that I've often found persuasive is that in, the, in, the, in America, these, the colonists, you know, would-be revolutionaries are still feeling a sense of dislocation in a new place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they might be able to trace their family back a generation, two generations, maybe three. But there, this wasn't a place that they had a deep history in. Mm-hmm. And so for them, the idea, religion still formed a kind of anchor in a world that still seemed, you know, that seemed somewhat in flux and indeterminate. Mm-hmm. Whereas in France, you know, these people, they, they felt saturated in history. You know, they felt the yeah. burdensomeness of the past. And so part of getting rid of the past was, try, was tearing away at those institutions, right, mm-hmm. that seemed to encroach on their notion of, you know, of, of human freedom and human possibility. But the context here was just so different, right? Of course, there were institutions here. There was a history here, but nothing like in Europe. And so I always find this a very interesting and persuasive argument that one of the reasons why Enlightenment thinkers here in the United States were not hostile to religion is, one, is they themselves were were clergy. (laughs) Many of them were clergy themselves. (laughs) And two, religion had an anchoring influence um, rather than a kind of overbearing one. Mm -hmm. Um, And they found a kind of middle path uh, between... um, you know, the modern, quote-unquote, modern sciences of Enlightenment thought in, in ways that harmonized with um, their uh, religious traditions. And that, it kind of, you know, now I'm going to make a, a big jump here. <laughs> that kind of gets us to uh, to something that's that has stayed with this, stayed with this country uh, since those days, and that is that we seem to have this idea that we're, uh, a, a Christian nation, uh, that mm-hmm. we are a country of uh, rich, uh, of, of, of white Christians, and generally speaking, you know, Protestants, that we have struggled with, with modifying that identity uh, going back to, you know, almost since forever. I mean, the, the, as with tides and tides of immigration that keep coming, first it's the Irish aren't, first it's, it's the slaves, it's the African Americans that aren't, uh, uh, that are, uh, that aren't equal, that are different. You've got the Irish that are subhuman, the Southern Europeans, the Eastern Europeans. Mm-hmm. It's just this, it goes on and on. And we, we just seem to struggle with, uh, the idea that there's more to us than uh, than the, this white Protestant thing, right? Well, I think you've nailed. You know, if there is an ongoing issue, theme, tension, light motif, if you will, of American intellectual history, it's precisely the one that you just identified, which is the struggling with, um, or and uh, with our diversity. Um, mm-hmm. So. Uh, and the narratives that get built to either support that or undermine that, right, or mm-hmm. somewhere in between, right? right. Yes. Um, so you just ticked off, a, you know, a number of different groups and traditions. You know, none of these slot, slot easily into a narrative about America as a, you know, as a Christian, founded as a Christian nation, um, um, which it wasn't. So, so by saying that that the, the the Enlightenment was not hostile to religion in America does not, by extension, mean that America was founded as a Christian nation. Um, that's uh, ludicrous. Yeah. Um, you know, these are inventions yeah. that come much later, and they come for political reasons. Sure. Uh, but the larger point, I think, is is the point that you know this place has always been home to different language groups and religious groups, and cultural traditions, and people that identified, you know, who their histories went back to very different parts of the globe. And so what has it mean to make a home in this place, you know, together, mm-hmm. the struggling with, through um, uh, our diversity? And then what does America mean, you know, in that context, right? Mm-hmm. If these, we're, we're not a people with a shared language, a shared religious tradition, um, a shared 
yet, I mean, you know, fill in the blank. So then what does American national identity mean? You know, what does it mean to be an American? Who is in, who is out? Um, And that really, that, that's really one of the great themes that holds my book together, because I think it's one of the great themes that dominates um, this, these centuries long history of this place. Yeah, you have, I mean, there's there's this whole, there's a whole theories of thought. We start moving into more modern times. You get the idea of, you know, there's there's Darwin, and then there's the use of Darwin, the creation of social Darwinism, uh, and the the scientific uh, racism, phrenology, and and everything else that, that kind of came along. Um, and uh, there has to be some way to... Uh, uh, there had to be some intellectual counterpoint to that. Uh, and we start to see that as we get into the 20th century, I think, don't we, with people like, like you know, with Franz Boas and some of the progressives trying to do something about that. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so one of the, uh, there, there, there's a lot of, when I yeah. answer your question, but yeah. one of the things that I hear you say, saying is just the where, where is it that as we move forward, with modern science, how to the to what extent is, are the is modern science helping Americans to figure out mm-hmm. how to navigate their diversity, right? Right, and either harmonize it, overcome it, celebrate it, et cetera. Right. And in which way has modern science historically been used to underscore um, divisions and hierarchies? Mm-hmm. Yes. And so even in your kind of, you know, taking in the in-breath yeah. about Darwinism, like if we look about, if we look at the history of how Darwinism has been used in the United States, it has been used both as a way basically to, to you know, to fully and uh, un- unmistakably endorse racism mm-hmm. and, and forms of um, extreme exclusionism, you know, from eugenics and on. But Darwinism has also gone on to influence thinkers who want quite the opposite, right? Who want, who want to celebrate diversity, who want to celebrate a world in flux, who want to celebrate difference. Right. And so Darwinist thought is helping them to kind of think their way through, not to avoid um, the diversity that we see in America, but as a way to, to nourish it and to underscore it. Um, so there's a, you know, there, there are many byways here, but, um, I can, so anyways, we can, we can talk about Darwinism and the ways in which it goes on to really underscore, um, um, different forms of, of racism and exclusion, but there's also another fascinating counterpoint, to use your word, about Mm -hmm. Darwinism as really helping modern thinkers adjust, um, to a, a modern world and a world of difference. Um, and really become more cosmopolitan in their outlook. It's you know I I remember I think it it I think it was Bill Clinton who when they unveiled the the human genome said this is the end of racism we're all the same, and, <laughs> and now there have been there have been ever since then there have been scores and scores of researchers who continue to try and look for something in that genome and then they keep running into this dead end they keep trying to find the key that's going to make sure that we're better than you are and it's just not there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is. Um, uh, I actually forgot about that Bill Clinton episode. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to have to. When we hang up, I'm going to have to look this up and right. add it yeah. to my repertoire of things <laughs> to talk about. I mean, th- this is where um, this is where this is one of the places where intellectual history gets super interesting over the last decades, um, in particular. And so, what do I? What, it, it is in the area of our understanding of race. And our efforts to over still kind of deal with overcome uh, racism in uh, the United States, which can take many forms, some very spectacularly obvious and some much much more um, invisible, but no no less insidious. Yes. And what the, Bill Clinton is exactly the right vintage. This is you know the nineteen. Um, well, 1990s, and this is the period where um, where we have the rise of. Uh, I'm not saying that Bill Clinton is a postmodernist, but I'm saying this is where we have the rise of a new intellectual movement, kind of generally called postmodernism, which is trying to tear away at any notion of essentials. You know, the ways in which we think of black or white or male or female or good or bad. That these sort of dichotomies are inheritances. Um, from former ways of thought, but they actually don't track with the real, the genuine complications of our blessing, 
blooming world. And so postmodernism is trying to tear away at these notions of essentialism. And it's precisely in this period, George, that we have more and more thinkers, social scientists, scientists coming in to look and see, well, actually, is there a biological you know, re- reinvestigating whether there's a biological basis for racial difference. And one of the things that's that's uncovered in this process is that actually not really. Right. <laughs> which is giving the indication that we might, that so much that we think about racial difference is are in fact social constructions, you know, that they're, they're inherited constructions. They come from culture, but not from nature. And so once we can really understand that, um, can't, shouldn't we be able to take the next logical step and get rid of racism, right? So like once you can show that the concept of race itself is, a, is not exclusively, but largely a historical co- co- construct, not something given to us by nature, then can't we now start to imagine the social implications of what that would be? And um, what, what observers found out very quickly is that you can be beyond race, but it doesn't mean you're beyond racism, right? So, yeah. you know, we have a, um, a vibrant history of thinkers from all sorts of, all ends of the political spectrum, or all up and down the political spectrum, you know, kind of interrogating the notion of race, but that doesn't track, um, it, it, it hasn't tracked in any meaningful way. Uh, with other forms of racial exclusion. And this is just to show how strong certain social traditions and practices and assumptions can go on, mm-hmm. even when the underlying, um, even when, uh, you know, there's fundamental knowledge that we have that would that would seem to make them um, incoherent. Yes. I, this is, <laughs> this is wonderful. This, this is a whole show. Um, yeah, the idea of, uh, you know, when, when the facts when the facts uh, confront your belief, throw out the facts. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's that whole. But I want to. I want to switch gears again, somewhat completely, uh, because I don't want. That's wanna... okay. I have to do it in the book, pretty okay. much every four pages. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, because I, it's covering yes. a lot of ground. So. I'm practiced at that. <laughs> I don't want to let you go here. We've got time yet. To, and by the way, give us a call at 608-256-2001 or online at wortfm.org. We would love to get your pledge, whether it's $5 or 500 Whatever you can afford would really be a wonderful for us. We've got a whole list of premiums that uh, you can find online or talk to uh, uh, our fine folks on the phone about. Um, but uh, there's a... Uh, th- the uh, the let's go going back to 1790 in my notes, we have Elizabeth Sergeant Murray on the mm-hmm. equality of sexes. Uh, so this is still an influential work, is it not? Um, I don't know. Okay. Um, I mean, I think it's read. It's still widely read. Okay. Red. Okay. Um, as a source of of um, American feminism, mm-hmm. um, it's still read you know, in American history as an important text that's trying to extend the logic of the Enlightenment and not just have it, you know, that all men are created equal, uh-huh. but, to, you know, but imagine that by ma- men, they mean also men and women, you know, they mean, the, they mean human beings more broadly. Um, but I don't know if, so and I, I think, I'm sure plenty of, of uh, uh, let's say, you know, feminists might say, you know, she's sort of the 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 or mother, you know, the great, okay. the great, uh-huh. great, great grandmother of modern feminism. Okay. But I don't know. Um, I, I mean, that's sincerely like I really don't know. It could okay. Be yeah. Well, how yeah. Widely read she is or not. She's certainly, okay. a, you know, she's certainly a well-known figure um, and important in this longer history. Okay. But I'm not sure. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. You know how much you know people are turning to yeah. Sergeant Murray today okay. uh, for guidance. Okay, it's it's a start. Now the one the the woman who uh, just jumped out of the book, and I uh, I have to find out more. Uh, I have to try and look for more because although I don't know that there is because she died so young. But Margaret Fuller, uh, what a remarkable human being! My so goodness. George, you are in luck. Um, in huh? her forty some years on planet Earth, which you're right, she died young. She's managed to pull off so much. 
that she has since captured. Now, you, you're talking about Judith Sargent Murray. Are people still reading her and discussing her? Sure. Uh, I mean, but I just don't know how extensively. But I think Margaret Fuller, now there's somebody who is still continues to capture people's uh-huh. imaginations um, today in all sorts of domains. So Margaret Fuller, for, for those of your listeners who maybe have not heard of her name, which wouldn't be surprising right. because it's often blocked out uh-huh. uh, by the names of the other prominent transcendentalists. So she's a friend and, in a way, a co-conspirator of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so she's in that, that circle of New England transcendentalists um, in the 1830s and 40s. So Henry David Thoreau, Hawthorne, um, Melville, um, uh, 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 I could, I don't, uh, right. Bronson Alcott, you know, okay. um, mm-hmm. uh, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, the founder of the modern uh, kindergarten movement. So M- Margaret Fuller, very briefly, was a transcendentalist uh, among the, this group. And what she's doing is she's just fascinating. She's a translator. Um, she invents a form of of intellectual debate. Well, I mean, she called it the conversations, but she thought the way to really um, explore and then nurture the full potential of thought for human flourishing wasn't simply sitting down pen to paper and just having it be a one-way street, but rather through quote-unquote conversations. So she hosted these conversations, always wanting to test and reformulate her own thought. Um, she's somebody who isn't just engaged in the transcendentalist ideas of self-culture and self-making and renewal. She's one of the, I don't want to say one of the few, but one of the most important, really yoking it to specific kinds of social reform. Mm -hmm. Um, She's one of the first, actually I think she's the first woman to go abroad uh, to Europe um, and was a correspondent uh, during the the democratic revolutions in Europe in um, uh, the 1840s. So she's also becomes a kind of early sociologist and political theorist. So she's just a fascinating figure who kind of does it, who does it all, and then mm-hmm. unfortunately dies tragically off the coast of, of New York when she's coming back um, from Europe. Yeah, but you're in luck because there yes. are some wonderful biographies about her, so okay. you can read more read more about her. Well, then I'll have to get out. I'll have to get out and look for those. You know, the transcendentalists. I my I have to throw my quick. I, I never much cared for Henry Thoreau because he couldn't do his own laundry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can talk to me all you want about self reliance, but if you can't do your own laundry, then you know, forget it. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's so true. I probably would have been gotten along better with with Margaret Fuller, because she she probably knew how to do it anyway. Um, I'm sure she did. <laughs> another. I'm sure she did. Also, just one yeah, more word. Sure, about oh, please, her, please. I, I have since had ni- nice things nice things to say about Henry David Thoreau. Oh, okay. <laughs> but, um, I, I, it's funny. I um, some. I like anyway. Sometimes I think he's a little bit of a crank, yes. um, but it, as, as I get crankier in my old age, I come to appreciate him more. But uh, the thing about a, Margaret Fuller, and again, this is not exclusive to her. Um, you see this also with Theodore Parker, who was an important transcendentalist and one of the main, one of the most prominent abolitionists of his day. Right, the idea that like high thoughts and serious action can go hand in hand. Right, so that there's serious intellectual work to be done at the desk, in the study, you know, in conversation, but it also has to be carried out through lived experience. And that's one of the things that I think is so fat. I mean, that's something obviously Thoreau tries to do, right? You know, by going to Walden, uh, by protesting his uh, poll taxes, right? So it's not just philosophizing about what it would mean to live the good and just and moral life, but like what it means to actually instantiate it, to live that life. And that's that's pretty... Um, that's pretty inspiring. Um, but Fuller is really an example of that as well. There's almost nothing that she wrote about George that she mm-hmm. was content to just leave on the page, you know, at the level of speculation. Right. But you can see someone is constantly doing that translation work mm-hmm. between thought and action and then coming back and rethinking the thought. So I just think she's she's just an exemplary figure for all of us to to, re- to read today. Um, yeah. Well, that'll be, it's now on my list. And, <laughs> and we, we were talking to the transcendentalists and we, you know, we get to action and one of the people that the transcendentalists, uh, hell, you know, seemed as a hero was, was John Brown. 
uh, who, yeah. who went out and took action. Now, when he when things went awry, some people who had given him money scurried away. But this was a man. Brown, on the other hand, was uh, while he had thoughts, was he had some issues, but he he definitely was a man of action in this regard. Absolutely, and this is um, what Thoreau um, so admired about him. So, if anyone is interested, a great place to to see where these connections are. So, what where does someone like a, a, a John Brown fit in with the with a, um, the transcendentalist view, um, or where you know where are their harmonies, where are their dissonances? A great place to start would be to read. Uh, Henry David Thoreau's A Plea for Captain John Brown, which fortunately is on, you know, the web, you know, in full, the full text of it is just fully available, easily accessible, you know, with a, a few strokes of the key. And it's Henry David Thoreau explaining what John Brown meant to him. And it's really pretty powerful. Okay. So he basically likens, the, um, sorry, sorry, likens Brown to a Christ, um, um, and the only, the, the, like, the example of what true Christianity would look like, right, to mm-hmm. fight on behalf, to liberate the meek, um, mm-hmm. the, um, that that's the true living of the gospel. Um, and so he, um, so we, he, make, he makes this connection, and then he kind of upbraids his listeners um, by saying, you know, the modern Christian is a man who's consent um, to say all the prayers in church as long as you let him go home and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, like this is what—so so it's also—it's not just an exaltation of John Brown, but it's a kind of upbraiding for, for Thoreau of modern Christians, content uh-huh. to let the gospel just be something that they recite on a, on a Sunday, but they do not carry it into their week, and they don't give, carry it into their lived practice. And so that's that's um, just an example of you know, just one example, but of, of what what a, a John Brown um, that kind of sacrifice, if you will, that kind of yeah uh, meant uh, 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 for the for, for some of the transcendentalists. Right, and he. Uh, so now I'm going to have to read that full thing. I've seen, I've, I've read pieces of it. In in books, but now I'll have to be drawn towards uh, reading the whole thing and then maybe reevaluate Thoreau again. <laughs> Although he still didn't do his laundry, I never was. He still didn't do his laundry. You know, so, so you know that that was uh, that's just one of those things that uh, that has to uh, uh, that that has to be dealt with. Um, let's. Uh, I want to uh, try to under trying to understand again uh, today. Uh, mm-hmm. We have this, and this is more modern. I, you know, there's there's things in the book. I I think I told you in an email that I struggle with viewing things that happen in my lifetime as history. It's journalism, and mm-hmm. so the, the the last fifty years, well, it should be seventy years, uh, you know, are uh, kind of something beyond what I tend to look at. But I see this. There's this thread of political thought, at least. Where you have the the Father Conklin's uh, Huey Long to a lesser extent than Conklin, but Huey Long and uh, Joe McCarthy, and then it, it runs into today uh, mm-hmm. with the uh, uh, the uh, populism and the uh, uh, chest thumping and the scapegoating. Mm-hmm. Uh, that just seems to be. I guess it goes back to our discussion earlier about about racism too and our, our struggle to define ourselves as a, as a nation that we really are as opposed to what people think we are. Yeah, yeah. Well, so you're, um, it's funny, I've, there's ways in, well, there's a number of things. One is that just like, where does history begin? Like where, where does, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, there's the state, the, the famous saying, which is that, you know, uh, journalism is the first draft of history. And so kind of like, well, when do, when do we mm-hmm. get to the second draft, right? So I have to say, George, I share your own kind of discomfort. This, the closer uh-huh. we get into my own lifetime, which now is um, a half a century. Yeah. So I, I have to start moving from journalism to history. But just sort of, you know, how, 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 how can we even get a perspective on things that still feel close into us, right? Yes. That yes. still feel like they're ever in process, you know? Um, mm-hmm. 
And um, it's funny, I um, actually teach a class on recent history. Um, it's called A History of Your Parents' Generation. Um, and I actually have a colleague at UW-Madison who teaches a class on called The History of Now. So he's even more explicitly doing contemporary history. And he and I actually co-authored a piece, which is what does it mean to actually allow ourselves to teach history from our lifetime, which uh-huh. is longer than the students, or even from our students' lifetime, right? right. And they're born, they're born in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, you oh, know, my how gosh. do we get them to think about 2006 as history? Or the turn of the century has nothing to do history. with 1800 anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right. So um, I, don't, I don't mean to digress, but, but I do yeah. think that actually there, this is an interesting thing to think about, right? Which is when, yes. which is the way in which actually trying to get comfortable with being able to think much closer into our lives as itself history. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and conversely, to even be when we go to look back in the 16th century or the 17th century or the 18th century to recognize that that's not settled either, because when we look at it, we're going to see things with fresh eyes. Right. Yes. So that that maybe it's an illusion to think that the further away we get from our own less experience or lived experience, the more authentic or true or definitive historical view we're going to have. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that sure. one thing. Well, it, I, I, also, we are running out of time, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost it's almost time for us to go here. And I, I, I we could do this uh, quite a while. I, maybe we'll have to I'll have to give you a contact again and we'll see if we can continue this discussion, maybe add it to a podcast that we do. Uh, our guest today has been Jennifer Ratner Rosenhagen, whose book is The Ideas That Made America a Brief History, uh, published by Oxford uh, University Press. And I want to thank you so much uh, for being with me today and helping our listeners get some kind of understanding of the ideas that made America. Wonderful. This was so much fun. Great. Um, I want to remind you that this is a pledge show. So WORTFM.org, 608 uh, Two five six two thousand one. Talk to Steve. I want to thank Steve for sitting by on the phones. I want to thank uh, our news director uh, and public affairs director, Shally Pittman, who is also doing double duty as my engineer today. It was uh, wonderful. Uh, and again, call us, 608-256-2001, and make your pledge. Stay tuned now for All Around Jazz with Alex Winding White. You are tuned to WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. Thank you.